You asked, and now we'll answer. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics First Ask Me Anything podcast. So strap in, and let's get started. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to another stimulating episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those either of Regent University or of the Robertson School. Remember that you can rate and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. iTunes ratings are helpful for us as they raise the profile of the podcast, so please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. You can also find us on Stitcher, Spotify, several other podcasting apps, and our main feed is on anchor.fm. And you can find us on social media on Facebook at Blind Politics. So this podcast is something that we've been planning for a while, and it was posted, um, the, the initial prompt for it was posted on Facebook, as we asked you, the listeners, for some of your favorite politics questions. And we've now collected enough of them that we can do an Ask Me Anything podcast. So I am actually riding shotgun on this podcast with the woman behind the curtain, producer Kylan. Producer Kylan, say hello to the people. Hello, how are you? All right. So what we're going to do is, uh, Kylan is my graduate assistant here at at the Robertson School. Uh, She's been producing the podcast since the beginning. And so what she's going to do is she's going to read the questions off that you have. I'm going to respond and uh, we'll, we'll go from there. So Kylan, take it away. So first, I think this is for a basic question. How did you first become interested in politics and international relations? Yeah, so that's a funny story. And we'll start with politics first. I actually first became interested in politics when I was in third grade in 1992. The election was Bush versus Clinton versus Perot. And there was a mock election at our school. And the rumor got around, I'm not sure exactly how, that Bill Clinton was going to make everybody go to school on Saturday. So he lost the election. And, you know, I, I'd become very interested at that point in, in the election. Of course, I, I wasn't going to vote for Clinton because I did not want to go to school on Saturday at that point. And, of course, Clinton got elected president and did not make us go to school on Saturdays, which was probably uh, good for, for everyone. But that's kind of how I started to get involved in it. And I thought it was a very interesting you know, aspect of, of life and just kind of have been, have been following it since then. I got really, really involved in it in high school and college to the point of being involved in political campaigns, uh, involved on political issues. The international relations component of it, I would say, came somewhat later. You know, my dad served in the military. I grew up in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which is a military town. The U.S. Army War College is there. So that's kind of in the air. But in my senior year of high school, two things happened that were significant. One, and I'm really dating myself today on this podcast, which which is fine. First was I read a book about Christians in the Middle East, which I didn't even know that was a thing. And second, 9-11 happened uh, very, very soon after. So those were kind of formative events. Went into college, uh, started to learn more about issues of uh, Christian, Christians abroad, particularly Christian persecution, but also just generally sort of global Christianity. And so that was really the entree for me to the international relations component of, of politics. So that's what sparked the initial interest. And I would say that interest really hasn't diminished over time obviously went through, got my, my PhD in it and now run a podcast on it amongst other things. So yeah, that's, that's the origin of it. 
That is so interesting, Dr. Nolte. Thanks for explaining all that. I guess next, who is your favorite political figure, past or present, and why? Favorite political figure is really hard to actually answer. So there's there's a couple of different categories that you you could go into. Favorite political philosopher is is one. It would be hard to pick just just one. Favorite contemporary political figure, favorite founding father, favorite international. So I'm going to do a couple of different categories. Probably won't do all of those categories here. So my favorite founding father obviously is George Washington because the the podcast recently, which hopefully you all listen to, if not go back and listen to it about why Washington is the greatest president uh, is, is very relevant. But probably my favorite unsung founding father is John Jay. John Jay was the first chief justice of the Supreme Court. He was also the first secretary of state. He really established in American foreign policy, a position of sort of free trade oriented neutrality in the affairs of Europe that served us well for a very long time. And I would say probably allowed for the development of and the maintenance of American prosperity for a long time. We, we did well when we stuck to John Jay's system until we got to the point where, you know, we weren't just benefiting from the sort of free trade order. We had to sort of protect it. Uh, so he establishes that with, with Jay's treaty, which is very unpopular. He was also an Anglican, which I'm a member of the Anglican Church of North America, so I always like to see that. But he had done a couple of, of other things that were semi-political. He was the founder of the New York Manumission Society, which led to the gradual abolition of slavery in the state of New York. New York had the most slaves of any state north of the Mason-Dixon line. And so John Jay and his fellows in the New York Manumission Society, actually in a state where it was probably against the interests of a significant number of voters at the time because you had a lot of Dutch farmers in the Hudson Valley that had slaves. He sort of abolished slavery in, in a gradual process that would eventually you know, lead New York to be a slave state. And that becomes very important, not only for the future prosperity of the state of New York, because slavery and, and, and the kind of free labor-based capitalism that leads to the prosperity of, of the northern states in, in the U.S. are somewhat incompatible, but also eventually leads to, I would say, the triumph of the Union in the Civil War. So John Jay is important for that aspect as well. And he is the uh, founder of the American Bible Society, which was a, a major successful mission organization and also an organization that promoted the importance of the Bible and biblical understanding that still exists. So John Jay is, is probably up there. It's one of my favorites. I would say my favorite moment of John Jay, though, is actually in the election of 1800. Alexander Hamilton sends Jay a proposal that would essentially allow New York to award electoral votes based on the legislature that existed before the most recent election. And this is this goes down to a quirk of, of New York's election law. And it would, be, it would essentially be the legislature changing the, the rules of the game after the election so that Hamilton and Jay's party, the Federalists, would actually get those electoral votes. And had that happened, John Adams probably would have won the 1800 election. And Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr, respectively, would have lost. But Jay actually didn't ever respond to Hamilton. They were close friends. And I think he didn't want to sort of, you know, upset his, his friend, who's very histrionic and very upset about this. Jay's a little bit more of a cool customer. But he just files it in his private correspondence with a note attached to it that says, a letter concerning a measure for party purposes it would not become me to adopt. So despite the fact that, you know, this is better for Jay and his political party, his personal sense of honor and dignity are such that he's not willing to even consider this as, as governor of New York at the time, that he's just sort of, you know, not, not even going to consider 
deliberately changing the rules of the game for partisan advantage. And so I think that that type of sort of real genuine patriotism of the founders, even in a really partisan time, is a good example for today. So I would say John Jay in terms of, of historical uh, founding figures. Contemporary, I don't really have a favorite right now in a contemporary American politics. I would say that I have sort of gotten to the point where I've been disillusioned enough by politicians in, in the past couple of years that I'm never going to you know, really put too much stock in or too much faith in any one politician. There are a couple of folks that I think are really interesting. Mike Gallagher, who's a congressman from, from Wisconsin's 8th District, he has a podcast called The New Look, which is very, very interesting. He actually has a an, sort of an intellectual background as well as, as a military background. And he's just, he's very, very bright, very interesting guy who, who likes to talk about interesting things and, and have people on that can engage with uh, issues at a fairly high level. So he's one of the brighter ones out there. You know, I could name some other sort of rising star type politicians. That's probably a separate podcast. And then just briefly, in terms of, you know, international leaders that I think are very intriguing, that, that I'm, I'm watching and, and I think are, are maybe sort of neglected in terms of people that, that you're looking at. I would point out Tsai Ing-wen from Taiwan. She's starting to get a little bit more press now, but she's a, a female leader of a country that is has a very precarious relationship with People's Republic of China. She is an outspoken advocate of, of Taiwanese independence, but she's also been a very capable, competent leader of a country of 24 million people that is basically a functioning democracy. And I think that probably she is somebody that we need to be paying a lot more attention to than we have been simply because the, the leadership that she has shown in Taiwan, the sort of progress that has been made in Taiwan, it's really one of the more remarkable and undersung stories in in politics today. So she's somebody that I definitely would say is, is sort of a rising figure on the contemporary political sphere and someone that we should be watching very closely. That is so interesting. Speaking of the contemporary political sphere, if you could become leader of one country in the world right now, other than the United States, which country would it be and why? Right. So this is a challenging question because there are a couple of different ways to to slice this one. You could look at it in terms of, I, I guess for, for me, the way I break it down is, do you like a challenge? Do you want a job that is going to be sort of one of the, the easier countries to run uh, where you're, you're going to, you know, you'll have any country you're running, you're going to have issues and problems, but one that is sort of not as, as complicated to, to, to manage where you're not going to necessarily get yourself in trouble. Or do you want a country that's going to have a lot of impact that sort of is a, a subtle player where you can really have an influence on world events. So I would say this, I would say if you were looking at the, I like a challenge, this country's got good bones, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done. That would be Lebanon. Lebanon is a complete hot mess right now. So why would you want to be in charge of Lebanon? Well, because it doesn't have to be. The fundamentals are strong. Lebanon at one point was one of the most prosperous countries in the Middle East, despite not having any oil. And what's, what's wrong with Lebanon essentially is, you know, external countries have been messing about with it and feckless and corrupt political elites. If you fix those problems institutionally, like in terms of the, the culture, in terms of the, the things that could lead a country to success and prosperity, Lebanon's got really good bones. And so you'd have to, it would be a challenge. You would have to do a lot of work to fix up the constitution. You'd have to do a lot of work to sort of build a sense of national unity and Lebanese national identity across sectarian divides. But I think that would be a, a fun 
you know, for, for me, if, if you, if you want to go sort of into that building phase of, of what it would be like to be involved in a country in that level, I think that would be, that would be one that would be uh, appealing. In terms of kind of what, what is a country that's really easy to, to run, there's a couple of contenders for countries that are just sort of very well run democracies that, you know, move, move forward and aren't too extreme one way or the other. You know, Australia, I would say, falls into that category. Australia would be fun. Plus, there are parts of Australia that have really good weather, and it's a fascinating country and has sort of some, some unique unique fauna. I've been obsessed with the duck-billed platypus since I was like eight, so I think it would be remiss if I didn't at least give Australia a nod. Plus, it's an interesting region of the world, and I think there's, there's a lot of unique things going on there. There are, you know, I, I would be thinking in this mode also about like countries that have good weather. So countries like Malta, Barbados, you know, small countries that are, are well run, that don't have a lot of issues there. And so then if you're talking about countries that, you know, are, are kind of between this, it's not a complete rebuild, but they're in a challenging part of the world. And, you know, there, there are some challenges, but also you can have a big geopolitical impact potentially. You know, here I'd be looking at Poland. Poland is in a really interesting neck of the woods. I think Poland is well positioned to sort of be a leader among the new European countries, the post-communist countries that are not wanting to be in the Russian orbit, but are still a little bit skeptical about integration with the French and the Germans because they've just gotten their national autonomy back and they're not sure they quite want to give it up. So Poland, I think, is, is uniquely positioned to be a leader in that block. And I think demographically, it's one of the more robust societies in, in Europe still. So that's kind of interesting in terms of, I think that they're an underrated player in the future of Europe. Indonesia is a country that is, a, as, as Poland is to Europe, Indonesia kind of is to the Muslim world, except more so because Indonesia is the most populous country in the Muslim world. There are significant challenges. There are significant divisions within an Indonesian society. But if you're looking at a country that could be a major mover and shaker that people aren't thinking about, in decades to come, it's probably Indonesia. And so that would be sort of attractive and interesting from that perspective as well. And one that I'll just kind of throw out there because, you know, it, again, it's it's a challenge, but it's also a really interesting country is Mongolia. And probably that one's going to be a surprise to folks, but you have a situation in which it is wedged right between Russia and China. It has immense natural resources and it has a bit of a pro-Western orientation because you would too if you have a lot of natural resources in your wedge between Russia and China. So, you know, the challenge there is can you successfully play off your rivals? Can you successfully form alliances that are going to protect you and, and keep you autonomous? And if you can, then you can really hold the balance of power in Northeast Asia. And that in and of itself is, again, a, a very interesting thing. So a um, couple of different options there. It's hard to really just settle on one. But I would say, you know, if you're if you're looking for the easy road, probably one of the the smaller, well-run countries in a place with decent weather. Fair. We all enjoy good weather. So next, what is your favorite little-known historical event? <laughs> That's a great question. Favorite little-known historical event? Oh gosh, there are there are a couple of really strong contenders here. And I kind of go through phases on these. I'm, I'm a bit of an alternate history junkie. So the, the little known historical events that are sort of pivot points of history are definitely interesting to me. So I'll give you a couple of possible ones here. One of them is the sort of uh, Siege of Malta and Battle of Lepanto in the mid 16th century. This really determines whether the sort of powers of, of the 
Christian powers of the Mediterranean or the Ottomans are going to be sort of the, the dominant actors in the Mediterranean moving forward. That's a really interesting event that is sort of fairly understudied. But, you know, if, if I was ever going to make sort of an epic movie, you know, one of those one of those giant epics like Kingdom of Heaven, which is really bad, or Gladiator, which was slightly less bad, or, you know, a sort of an epic war movie, it would probably be on either the Siege of Malta or Battle of Lepanto, just because there's a lot of really interesting dynamics that go into that. Another historical period that's really fascinating and, and sometimes understudied is the period sort of right before the rise of Islam, in that century between the collapse of the Western Roman Empire in, in the, the sort of 470s, 480s, and the, the rise to power of Muhammad. Because you have some really interesting things that we would never even consider right now that are you know, dynamics that are going on. You have the, the question of the survival of the East Roman Empire, what we now call Byzantine, their attempt to reconquer portions of the West. You have in the Arabian Peninsula, a conflict between Black African Christians and Arabic-speaking Jews. This is a long-running conflict between Ethiopia and the Kingdom of Himyar in uh, Arabia, which is just really interesting. It also pulls in the, the Byzantines and the Persians, and it's a, it's a fascinating time period in history that nobody knows that much about because it's, it tends to get obscured by the rise of Islam after that. But that, that's one that's just really, really interesting and a lot that's, that's going on there. And then in American history, I'll give you a couple. One is in 1676, Bacon's Rebellion. This is a rebellion that happens in Virginia, colonial Virginia. And it is really after this rebellion that you start to see a systematic attempt by the government of Virginia to differentiate between white indentured servants and African-American slaves to really establish what is a, a racial caste system. And the purpose of this actually is to make sure that white indentured servants aren't going to rebel again by giving them a, a slightly elevated status above another group in society, right? So it's, it's a divide and rule strategy. And there are a number of, of different small potential changes that could have changed the outcome there. So that's a really interesting sort of contingent event in American history that you kind of look back on and say, you know, what if that had gone different? What if the end result of that was, was different? And then I'll give you one other one, and that is the death of Henry Stewart, who is the son of Charles I, brother of Charles II. And the reason this is interesting is because Henry Stewart was both a very loyal member of the, the Stewart family and also a very devout Protestant, unlike his brother James II, who is a Roman Catholic. If Henry survives, he probably inherits the crown after the death of Charles II, who dies childless. And if he inherits the crown as a Stuart, who is also a Protestant, you probably don't get the Glorious Revolution, which is the parliamentary ouster of James II for essentially being a Catholic and trying to undermine the Protestant settlement in England. And if you don't get that, there's a gentleman who is somewhat significant in the history of American political thought by the name of John Locke, who writes his uh, first and second treatise of government essentially as a response to the Glorious Revolution. So it is interesting to speculate if you still have the maintenance of the Stuart monarchy, if Henry, who would have been Henry IX, comes to power. What ends up happening for the British Empire, what ends up happening with the colonies, and how many things could have been changed if that one person had just survived and inherited the British crown. So those are a couple of sort of little known historical events that if you start thinking about it, you, you start to realize, wow, that is a huge potential change that, that could have happened. One historical 
I don't call this event necessarily, but process that I think is also really interesting, is the missionary expansion of a church that's known as the Church of the East. And this is a, a Syriac-speaking church. They're sometimes known as Nestorian. They sent missionaries from Syria all the way into China and India and possibly you know way beyond that. But there's a substantial, lively Chinese Christian church that exists that's planted by the Assyrian Church of the East. And so it's always kind of curious to me to wonder, you know, what would have happened if that church in, in China had, had survived, had not been sort of interrupted by imperial policy. So, you know, just a couple of, of other speculative points there. Wow, that really makes you think about how different history could have been if, you know, things happened differently than they did. For the next question, I guess we're going to catapult more towards the present. What do you think the most underrated or ignored geopolitical threat that the United States currently facing is? Yeah, so I'm going to answer this from a certain perspective. And that perspective is somebody who mostly studies the Muslim world and the Middle East in particular. And so I'm fairly certain there, there are some that I'm missing um, that, that could actually be geopolitical threats moving forward. But the country that I look at as a potential geopolitical threat that the U.S. has really not figured out how it's going to deal with is Turkey. Turkey is increasingly moving away from the West, but it's also moving into a position where it's it's kind of playing footsie with the, the Russo-Iranian alliance in the region. It's not really wanting to get fully on board with that either. And so they're taking a little bit of a third position in the region. They're also trying to, I would say, seize the mantle of the Sunni Islamic, uh, the defenders of Sunni Islam in the region. And that, again, is, is a very interesting maneuver on their part. Not sure how that's going to play out. But look at the strategic competition between Turkey um, and any allies that it can bring to the forefront. I would say Qatar would be part of that alliance for sure. I would say there are other countries that may sort of drift into the Turkish orbit over time, depending on how things play out. I would say that's probably also going to be a player in Caucasus, which is an increasingly important region as well, and, and possibly even into Central Asia. And then Iran, and possibly Iran working with the Russians, and then also sort of the, the status quo block in the Middle East, which would be you know sort of the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, other Gulf states, Egypt, and to a certain extent Israel. That three-way comp. Anytime there's a three-way competition, there's a lot of instability that could potentially uh, come out from that. So, if you were thinking, "Oh, the U.S. is eventually finally going to pivot away from the Middle East and be able to completely focus on China," it's probably not. There's probably going to we're, we're going to have to, from an American perspective, do both things at the same time. The other underrated threat, and this isn't necessarily relevant to a specific country, but the other thing that I think we need to be a lot more concerned about is biotechnology as WMD or biotechnology, uh, the weaponization of, of biotech. Biotech is a fairly new field. You know, we, we don't know. Right now, it looks like the, the promise is completely unlimited. It's probably not. Anytime a technology is in its infancy, it looks like, you know, this could completely revolutionize the way we do everything. And then, you know, it looks like it's going to completely revolutionize, uh, revolutionize technology. And then you get to the point where all you're actually doing is just making a slightly smaller, slightly more competent version of the iPhone, which is kind of where we are with computer technology. So biotech is probably going to go that way eventually. But in the meantime, there are a number of different possibilities for military applications of biotechnology and also, you know, frankly, terrorist potentially applications of biotechnology. And particularly as we are seeing this movement advance, I think you're going to see a pushback against it on a number of different fronts, a pushback against the biotech revolution. 
some of it coming from traditional religious groups, some of it coming from more environmentally oriented groups with a sort of natural, you know, I don't want to say nature worshiping, but very you know, pro-nature oriented worldview. And so that's a potential fault line. And also there are some geopolitical threats in terms of what other countries and other societies might end up doing with biotechnology and the possibility of, of sort of a, a biotech arms race, for lack of a better term. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, one of the things that uh, sometimes makes it hard to sleep at night. For sure. So I guess next, a very contemporary issue in our country right now. How do you think Christians should respond to the Black Lives Matter movement? I know a lot of people are conflicted because they want to support, you know, the cause of racial justice, but don't necessarily support all the doctrines of the Black Lives Matter organization. Yeah, so I think this is a complicated question. First of all, I don't believe in hashtag activism because hashtags, hashtag, hashtags don't matter. And I think the whole Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter thing, the really irritating thing about it is that I think we start from a premise of people are not necessarily, they are more focused on what they think they're saying and not necessarily on what other people are hearing, right? So when you talk about Black Lives Matter from the perspective of someone who is an African-American, what you're saying is, you know, essentially we have not been receiving all of the benefits and all of the dignity that are, are due as American citizens. I think that's a perfectly valid thing for us as people who are not African-Americans to sympathize with, right? And, and not only sympathize with, but be angered by and want to correct, uh, to strive to correct that injustice, to sort of perfect the promise of America. And that's what is being said. But sometimes what is being heard, especially if you think about it from the perspective of poor working class white people who are actually systematically also deprived of many of the advantages of um, sort of the elite technocracy who have many of the same challenges in their communities that you would see in poor African-American communities who are struggling with, you know, endemic poverty, drug addiction, uh, uh, families that are, are single parent where the parent is working. So the kids don't have a lot of the same opportunities that you, you might take for granted. When they hear Black Lives Matter, what they hear is our lives don't matter. Our problems don't matter. Our struggles don't matter. And nobody can, and once again, you know, nobody cares about us and nobody cares about what's happening to us. And it would never be put in that way. But there's a sort of sub, subtle sub, subtext that they're hearing. That's not what people who are African-American are saying, but that is sometimes what, what people are hearing. So all lives matter, which is the other big hashtag. Oftentimes what people mean, especially I would say more uh, people on the evangelical side, is that we believe that all people are made in the image of God and possess equal dignity from that. And we don't want to put any one group above another, but we do want to respect the dignity of all people. That's not fundamentally incompatible with what African-Americans are saying when they say Black Lives Matter. But I think what they're hearing oftentimes is when you say all lives matter, that you are, you're trivializing what is happening to people who are African-American. You're saying, well, this is just one issue among many. And essentially, you know, we're not going to, to see this as an urgent concern. Uh, it's just one more thing you know, on the laundry list. And so it's, it's sort of being minimized. So again, what is being said and what is being heard are very different in both of these, which I think hashtags are not really the best way to communicate on this. I don't think that Again, as I said, when when one person says Black Lives Matter and another person says All Lives Matter, for most of us, I don't think what you're saying, the two things that you're saying are actually mutually incomp incompatible. But what you're hearing from the other person is the opposite, I think, in many cases of what they're actually trying to say. And so that's one of the biggest challenges that we have with this. Now, in terms of the BLM movement as a whole, 
I'm, I'm planning on doing a longer podcast on the idea of critical theory, which uh, critical theory and a subvariant of that critical race theory is behind a lot of what the BLM movement is trying to say. I think that most people who are retweeting the Black Lives Matter hashtag don't know a single thing about the BLM movement, don't really know that there is a BLM movement, are saying it because they want to express support and sympathy with African Americans that are, you know, feeling this sense of of not uh, receiving the the rights and dignities that they're due as American citizens, and you know, th- there's there may be things behind the the BLM movement that they're just not aware of, and they're they're you know retweeting it and, and saying it in you know all lack of awareness of that, and I, I don't necessarily think that's the worst thing in the world because I don't know I don't know that you necessarily need to be in the weeds on all of this stuff. I think that. BLM is highlighting an important issue in the sense of some of the systematic and systemic issues that are, are happening, particularly in you know, urban African-American areas, but also you know, some, some systemic issues of, for those who are upwardly mobile and African-American, being sort of looked at through a certain lens that makes it harder to move up the ladder. I think those are important issues. And there are issues, frankly, that I think those of us who are of a more conservative bent have ignored and need to do a better job of addressing from the perspective of conservative principle. And I've done a couple of pods on that before. That being said, I think that BLM is addressing it in the worst way possible and in the most counterproductive way possible. You know, I think that without getting too much into it, because again, I'm going to talk about some of the critical theory stuff in, in a bit. I think that a Marxist lens is particularly unhelpful when looking at these issues. I think it's it's fairly unpersuasive. I think that there is a real failure to actually put things in terms that that the people that you need to persuade are going to be persuaded and i don't think bl i don't think the blm movement is particularly interested in persuading people you know i think that there is sort of a a revolutionary ethos and revolutions number 1 tend not to work all that well and number 2 two tend to eat their young you know the american revolution notwithstanding which was unique for a number of reasons so i i think the blm movement has a lot of problems I also think, though, that if you are somebody who is, you know, more conservative on just in general, politically conservative, if you're someone who's not a Marxist, if you're someone who's concerned about critical race theory and, you know, all this Marxist stuff that's that's going on, that's coming out of BLM, if you're concerned about the fact that, you know, essentially there has been a very subtle but definitely significant attempt to hijack the George Floyd movement for radical social uh, social progressive agendas like destroying the nuclear family. If you're concerned about those issues, then the best thing that you can do is start thinking about how we address the underlying concerns that people have on the basis of conservative principle. And that is something that really needs to be done, a, a conservative approach that takes issues of race and racism seriously. Because even if you don't believe that those issues are as serious as the moment currently is, is making it out to be, the issue is going to be addressed. And if the only ones who are making proposals about how to deal with racism are these, you know, kind of crazy Marxist people who think that the way to empower African Americans is to destroy the family, then that's probably going to be what happens. So to prevent that, um, the smartest thing that you can do if you're from a more conservative perspective is start really engaging with the issue, uh, you know, trying, trying to do your own research, trying to figure out what some of the underlying causes are and propose sort of 
some systematic solutions that don't necessarily come from that Marxist lens. And by the way, I think that would actually be more well-received than a lot of people realize, because I don't know that most African-Americans are Marxists, are interested in critical theory, are interested in sort of, you know, uprooting the structures of society. I think what they're, what, you know, a lot of people are, are hoping for is a more full participation in the benefits of American society. Because if you feel like you're in this great society, but you're not getting all the benefits from it. You're you're excluded from it. You know, there there is there is an implicit understanding there that you think these things are good, and that you're angry because they're being denied to you. And so the way to fix that problem is to make sure that they are not denied, rather than trying to rip up the system. And I think that that's actually what most African Americans, if if given a choice, would prefer in terms of a policy outcome. Because just in general. Most people are not revolutionary. Most people want to reform the system. Most people want to participate in the system to a greater degree. Uh, but most people really don't have that sort of revolutionary inclination. So, you know, if you're looking at it from a conservative perspective, you're concerned about all this BLM stuff, figure out how we respond on the basis of conservative principle to the underlying issues. I think that's the most constructive thing that we can do right now. Definitely. And for anybody who was wondering about the podcast he mentioned he'd previously recorded. It is called How Conservatives Can Join the Conversation on Race and Why They Should. It was released on June 16th of this year, and it is a really good listen, so you should go check that out as well. So next, I realized I kind of skipped over a question that would have been a good follow-up for the previous one about global threats. I got scared by the talk of all the technology, but... (laughs) Fair enough. So what do you think Turkey's future in NATO should be? I think Turkey's going to be out of NATO within the next five to 10 years. Um, and that's not a should, that's a, that's a will. You know, I think from, from the U.S. perspective, it's not a terrible thing to try to keep them in the tent as long as possible. In that sense of, you know, the longer you keep them in NATO, the more hopefully NATO can keep Turkey from totally going off the rails. I think from the Turkish perspective, they want to stay in as long as they can, so that they can continue to triangulate between Russia and the West, because they don't really want to try to come out and, and, you know, take a third position fully until they are ready. But I think despite the fact that it's actually in the, at least the short term interest for both countries to, to, for Turkey to stay in NATO, I would say 10 years from now, Turkey won't be in NATO anymore. The, the increasing drift of Turkish foreign policy, of Turkish domestic policy, of, um, you know, the, the sort of, approach to politics that Turkey has. The fact that Turkey is sort of actively courting a third position with Russia, and NATO at least initially was a primarily an alliance desert designed to you know, keep, keep the Soviet Union and, and now Russia from trying to exert a hegemonic uh, position over Europe. And now I would say a lot of NATO is trying to keep Russia from exerting a hegemonic position over Eastern Europe. And I think NATO is increasingly going to be trying to figure out what its purpose is. And I think the most logical purpose of NATO is sort of as the the kernel, the seedbed for an alliance of democracies. And I suspect that there's going to be, and I, I did a podcast on this as well, the idea of the democratic zone of peace. I think NATO is probably a fundamental building block of that idea. And, you know, Turkey's not really interested, I, I don't think, in, in being in, in that. Now, all of this changes if Erdogan dies and he gets replaced by somebody else, because there are factions within Turkey. But if he is able to pass things on to his designated successor, whoever that might be, or if that takes a long time, I expect that Turkey is going to be out of NATO within the decade. Yeah, wow, that's that's soon. Very soon, really. Yeah, well, and I think part of it is also, 
Turkey eventually is going to decide that NATO is not useful anymore because it actually limits their freedom of action. So Turkey really just wants to delay it until they can build things up to the point where they feel comfortable stepping out. And so, you know, if that's sort of the mentality that you already have, I think it's it's inevitable that it's probably going to happen sooner rather than uh, so- sooner than you're you're ready for it to happen. So, you know, add that to the fact that Turkey's relationships with our European partners are probably not going to improve in any measurable sense. And you can start to see the contours of, of how that might happen. Yeah, for sure. So a topic that has come up another a few times on this podcast is American exceptionalism. What yeah. would you define as American exceptionalism? Okay, so there are a couple of different forms of American exceptionalism. You know, there's there's the sort of hypernationalist form, uh, which which is essentially America first. There is the sort of more liberal internationalist form, which says America is is great, and we want to make everybody look like America as much as possible. And then there's what I would call the sort of comparative historical form. And the comparative historical form is, I would say, more of an empirical claim rather than a a sort of normative one. And it's a claim that America is just different. It's just different from most other countries. It's different from most other countries in how it's formed in the basis of, of national identity. It's different from most other countries in the way its its political system works and the way people sort of think about those those types of, of issues. It's it's different in its culture, even from sort of its, its European forebears in some very significant ways. And I think some of those differences are Americans are sort of rapidly entrepreneurial. That makes sense if you think about the fact that most of the European immigrants who came to America, you know, these are the people who are the most likely to up and leave their home, either for religious reasons or because they think that there is an opportunity to move somewhere, start something new and build something new. So you basically genetically concentrate people with the let's go build something else gene and people who are sort of religious entrepreneurs. By religious entrepreneurs, I mean people who are willing to say, okay, we're going to go out into a howling wilderness and try to build a sort of religious utopia. So Americans are builders, are entrepreneurs, and have a sort of utopian streak. That's, you don't see that in a lot of other countries, right? So America is exceptional in that sense. I think that's just an empirical fact. In terms of the other types of American exceptionalism, I think that we need to temper our other forms of American exceptionalism by that historical comparative and say, look, yes, we do think we have created something that's really great in terms of a system of government. We also need to recognize that most nations do not look like us and most people don't think like us. We think in a way that is different. We are exceptional. So how do we take the things that have worked in America and apply some of those solutions to countries that are very different from a cultural perspective, very different from a history perspective, uh, very different in, in terms of national character. And so recognizing that we don't necessarily need many versions of America, but that there are some intrinsic values in American in the American system that can be represented in institutions that look different from what we have in the United States. So I would say that's kind of the American exceptionalism that I would subscribe to, that America has some unique values those unique values should be instantiated in as many societies as they can be. But this is a long, difficult process, and the result is not necessarily going to look like the institutions that we have here in the United States. So I would say American exceptionalism has to first grapple with the fact that America is actually exceptional, that America is the exception and not the rule. I think that sometimes if, if you're, 
you, you can veer too much into, actually, America is not exceptional. Anybody could have done what we did. Well, uh, not necessarily. There, there are some cultural factors. But you can go too far in the opposite direction, too. You can say everything that America has is sort of a result of culture. Nothing can be replicated. None of America's values can be replicated. So we just shouldn't bother with the rest of the world. And that's also false. So I would take kind of a, a middle position. But really, I don't think anybody disbelieves in American exceptionalism. Even America's most vociferous critics within the United States. Even if you think that America is a horribly racist, imperialist, jingoist, all of these horrible things ist society, right? You think that because you have an ideal version of what you think America should be like, and America's not living up to those ideals. You don't think that because you've actually gone through and rigorously compared America to other societies on those terms. Because if you had, you'd be like, wow, yeah, America is at worst average, and at best is, is above average on most of these areas where I think it's terrible. But it is terrible compared to the utopian ideal that we as Americans all have of our own country, right? So even America's harshest critics do so in a very, very, uh, cr criticize America in a way that is very, very quintessentially American. It's, you know, it, it is that sort of utopian idea of we can build the perfect city on the hill. This isn't perfect. And that building idea of, well, since it's not perfect, you know, let's change it and fix it until it is perfect. And so, you know, even, even America's harshest critics within are themselves being very American about the whole thing. And I think that's just always something for us to keep in mind in terms of American exceptionalism. You can't actually be an American and not to a certain extent believe in American exceptionalism because we all really to a certain extent have been so deeply shaped by and continue to be so deeply shaped by the things that make America unique. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I guess. So next, Providence Magazine recently posted an article regarding a potential hegemonic war with China. The author of the article believes that a conflict is inevitable. Would you agree? And do you find the Thucydides trap to be a helpful paradigm or an unhelpful self-fulfilling outlook? Okay, so let's define a couple terms first. So the Thucydides trap is the idea that if there is a dominant power, a rising power will always, you know, will, will essentially inevitably conflict with the, with the dominant power, and there will be sort of a position of power transition. And in that power transition, that, that inevitably leads to conflict, right? And there's no escaping this conflict. I think this misunderstands the durability of American hegemony, right? So the first thing that I'll say about the, the Thucydides trap is that if you think this applies to the United States and China, you're probably basing that idea on the pre-World War I uh, conflict between Britain and Germany. Look, the first thing that you have to keep in mind when you're when you're making that comparison is Britain was an island that had an essentially to obtain the natural resources that it needed had to engage in a wide-scale, you know, trade-based hegemonic imperial system, right? So they're the they're the hegemon, they're maintaining the, the trade, they're a completely naval-based power and, you know, they they need this for natural resources. They need their colonies to provide the natural resources that will lead them to maintain this hegemony. The U.S. is almost literally a continent. It is a continental superpower. We have natural resources that are vastly greater than anything Britain has. The reason that we don't use them is because it's cheaper to get them elsewhere, right? So we, we get natural resources. We get the things that we get in, in, uh, you know, from China, for example. It's not that we couldn't make them here. It's not that we don't have the natural resources. It's just cheaper for us to get them elsewhere. Insofar as 
there is a decoupling between the United States and China. What this looks like for the U.S., I would say, is an economically painful couple of years of adjustment. As we adjust to finding new sources, as we adjust to producing some things domestically that we used to offshore, and that probably doesn't mean an influx of new manufacturing jobs. That probably means new manufacturing technologies that allow us to produce things increasingly in a domestic way. It doesn't mean autarky either, but it does mean that U.S. trade policy is going to be a lot more values-based, right? So the previous trade policy that we have is, you know, we'll trade with anybody and, and trade will inevitably lead other countries to share our values. I think the new trade policy is going to be, we will trade first with countries that trade that share our values. We will use trade as a means of inculcating and strengthening those values. And it's going to be sort of a more unified strategy. I think for China, economic decoupling from the United States is a potential catastrophe because China has pursued a very export-led economic strategy and they need export markets and they need export markets for, you know, they, they need consumer markets that are capable of buying a lot of the high-end stuff that they want to produce because producing that makes them a power. So they could do it internally, but doing so internally means they will have to cater to a much greater degree than they have to the Chinese middle class. And catering to the Chinese middle class means you kind of have to let them have more buy-in to the system. So that's going to be a challenge for China. I'm not saying they can't pull it off. I am saying I think most people who are analyzing the U.S.-China relationship right now tend to minimize the U.S. advantages and magnify the, the Chinese advantages and also magnify the U.S.'s problems and minimize China's problems. The U.S. also is, you know, yes, China is trying to catch up militarily with the United States, and there are challenges with that. Uh, the U.S. is overwhelmingly more militarily powerful still than China. The reason the U.S. hasn't, the reason, Ch Ch I should say, the reason China is you know, confident that they could hold their own in a war with the United States is because they're confident the U.S. will have to do other things at the same time. From a soft power perspective, the U.S. has, the, has far outstripped China, and that's without trying. We do not have and have never had a concerted soft power strategy, a concerted uh, strategy to maximize U.S. soft power in terms of public diplomacy, in terms of international relations, in terms of sort of maintaining our, our position. We don't do that strategically at all, which is actually part of the reason we've been so successful. But, you know, with a little bit of strategic guidance that also kind of still still lets a thousand flowers bloom in that respect, you could really actually see the U.S. magnify that advantage to, to a much greater degree. China's soft power strategy has been all centralized and state directed. And I would say it has backfired and is going to continue to backfire. Even in Iran, after the, the recent agreement, you know, there were lots of protests within Iran about sort of Chinese economic neocolonialism. And you're hearing that argument in Africa as a result of Belt and Road. You're hearing that argument in other developing countries where China's put in Belt and Road. And so I think Belt and Road has a real possibility of backfiring on China as people see them as essentially just a neocolonialist power, right? And so the way I'd be looking at it if I'm a country in the developing world is the U.S. is going to say really annoying things about how they want us to democratize and really annoying things about promoting their values. But when the U.S. comes in and does something and says they're going to do something and says they're going to build something that's for our benefit, like they're actually going to come in and do it. You know, China will come in and make a lot of promises, build infrastructure, and the infrastructure that's any good is reserved for the exclusive use of Chinese uh, citizens and Chinese companies. And the infrastructure that is for the nation, you know, for the developing country is not very good. It breaks down after a couple of years. So, you know, I, I think the U.S. has some advantages there. Now, I do think there's going to be conflict between the U.S. and China. I suspect it's mostly going to be proxy conflict. 
neither the US or China wants a full-scale war. The biggest danger of a full-scale war actually is probably in the next five years. If we get through, let's say, 2026, and we haven't had a, a full-scale Sino-American military conflict, we're probably not going to. Because the next five years, I would say, we're going to be looking at the U.S. decoupling from China to the extent that it's actually going to do so, looking for other suppliers, possibly trying to do some re reprise of the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and also bring some manufacturing home. And so that, that reduces expectations of future trade for China. And reduced expectations of future trade is something that historically has caused conflict in the past. So, if the, so the U.S. really needs to, over the next five years, show resolve on the areas where China is most likely to push. And that would be, I would say, Taiwan. That would be in the South China Sea. And that would be with, with some of our alliances in China's near abroad. So, so Japan, South Korea. So the Japan, South Korea, Taiwan alliances are really important. We need to mend fences with the Philippines. We need to think about you know, having a, a countering alliance with, with uh, Vietnam. And we need to be firm with, you know, here's what the red lines are. Here's where our commitments are. And we, we, do not, we do not want a war, but if you cross these lines, there will be a war. But we also need to make sure that China feels like it's not being completely excluded from the system. We need to make sure that we're still having lines of communication. We need to look at some areas where maybe there's a possibility for cooperation and collaboration. I would say those areas are going to be mostly on the margin, but that's more an expectation setting uh, aspect. And so if we can get through 2026 without a conflict with China, I think that probably we will have rebalanced the relationship in a way that we, you know, we're going to have a Cold War. Cold Wars are not great, but Cold Wars are not hot wars. And I would say that's probably the, the best case outcome is that there's, there's some sort of Cold War. But I also think you know, the Thucydides trap argument is really banking on American decline in a way that I would not. I think America is going to decline eventually. But I think that's probably a conversation that people like us are going to be having in a century rather than right now. I think that what we're looking at right now are some systemic shocks as the American system needs to adapt. But we, we still have that adaptability gene. Uh, we still have that gene of, okay, let's fix it. Let's tweak it. Let's rebuild it. That hasn't really completely gone yet. And so I think we've, we've probably got uh, at least the rest of the 21st century for America as, as the, uh, the global hegemon. Well, I mean, that's, that's good to hear. For those of you interested still in more China discussions, Dr. Nolte has had several other discussions with Professor Hasty on this topic. And those are also really great listens. Right. So we have uh, a hasty pivot to China, parts one and two. And then I can't remember the name of the, the other one that was more recent that we did on China. I'll just add it in the show notes or something. Okay, perfect. But I think we have time for one more question right now. Who... Is going to the, who do you think is going to the Super Bowl this year, and why is it the Jacksonville Jaguars? Okay, there was another question about, uh, from what I remember, there's a question about Eric Vogelin. I'll probably do, you know, Bill, if you're listening to this, I'll probably do a, a separate Vogelin podcast, because Vogelin is fun. But, you know, there, 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 the, uh, the Gnosticism will be revealed. And to Austin, who asked... Why do I hate the global poor? I don't. Actually, uh, RSG is starting a new international development degree specifically to help the global poor. And this is a, a joke that goes back to a, a class that 
that he had with me. And, you know, it, it, it was a debate on uh, globalization. Um, but I'm also at some point going to do an international development podcast. So we will address those. But this is an important question. I really want to get to it. Some of you, my podcast listeners may not know that I'm a huge football nerd. So I'm, I'm happy to address this question. And the answer to the question about the Jacksonville Jaguars is that if the Jacksonville Jaguars actually win the Super Bowl this year, it is, I would say, inescapable proof of the existence of God that any, if you're an atheist at all, any kind of atheist whatsoever, and the Jacksonville Jaguars win the Super Bowl this year, you need to give it up because God's not even hiding it at this point because it would be a miracle if they won the Super Bowl. I think there's a reasonable chance they actually end up with the number one pick in the draft, which would not necessarily be bad for them because it's going to be a good quarterback class. So who do I think is going to win the Super Bowl? I would say it's probably one of maybe three or four teams, Chiefs, Ravens for the or AFC, and then in the AFC, I would say, or uh, sorry, Chiefs, Ravens, AFC, and then in the NFC, I would say it's probably the Saints or whoever wins the fight in the NFC West. Possibly the Buccaneers, but, you know, we've got to see if Tom Brady still got it. I'm very intrigued by the Buccaneers, but I, I could see... I could see them being a real contender. I could also see them completely flopping on their faces, or I could see them being, you know, in it, but not, but not uh, quite close. Unfortunately, I think it's not going to be my, my own personal favorite Green Bay Packers. They, I think they'll probably win the division, but I don't think they've gotten enough better over the offseason that they can really compete with some really dynamic teams in the NFC. But I suspect it's probably going to be either the Ravens or the Chiefs that come out ahead. You have to really, both, both of them have excellent offenses and increasingly solid defenses. So it's, it's going to be exciting. I'm, I'm just hopeful that we get football this year. You know, Canadian Football League is already canceled. College football is canceled. So everything is now riding on the NFL because, you know, that that is just uh, a real possibility that we're not going to have any football at all because of COVID. So uh, hopefully the NFL is able to uh, hang in there and everybody's able to stay safe. They're able to put in reasonable precautions and we actually get football this year. Great. Well, I think that is all the questions I have for you today. All right. And that is going to be a wrap for this episode. Thank you for listening. Please remember you can rate and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics. If you have questions that you've thought of subsequently, you know, you can always post them as comments on any, on this uh, Facebook post or any future ones. And when we collect a sufficient number of questions, we will do another one of these Ask Me Anything podcasts. I'm hoping to do them kind of once a month-ish, but you know, that depends on you guys. So uh, keep those questions coming and not exactly sure what episodes are going to come out next. I suspect the next one in the hopper is actually an episode that I recorded last night that's probably going to come out on Friday on the post office and the, the sort of U.S. Postal Service controversy that is roiling American politics right now for no discernible reason. It's pretty salty, so enjoy that. And, you know, we've got some good stuff planned for the future, a couple of interviews possibly. Still planning on doing that counting in COVID. Um, and I've made a couple of promissory notes about podcasts on critical theory, Eric Vogelin, and international development. So those will be cashed in in due time. Otherwise, have a great rest of your week, everybody. Thanks again for listening and for Blind Politics. This is Dr. Nolte and producer Kylan signing off. <music>